Good morning, everybody. Um, today's scripture is from Acts 3, 11 through 26. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, um, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus's name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for, your, for you a prophet like me from among your own people, you must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on the earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. All right. Thank you, Heather. That was a big passage. Good morning. Everybody all right? Recovering nicely? Ready to get back into regular life schedules? I am. Um, okay. So there's a lot going on. Um, there's a lot happening in this passage. Um, he talks about eschatology. He talks about all kinds of things um, that we're going to talk about later. Uh, Peter is constantly standing up and delivering monologues. That's what Peter does. He's a speech guy. He's a preacher, right? Like, and mo most of these monologues that Peter delivers, this is like the third one we've seen now, um, most of them are probably like 45-minute monologues that have been condensed by Luke down to just the main points in these passages because Rhetoric was sort of um, a discipline of the day. Um, rhetoric was how you gathered a crowd. Now, um, here's what's going on in this passage. We have just seen in the previous passage, um, there's this healing that takes place. Peter and John are walking towards the temple. They go in the east side of the temple gate, and there's a man there begging. Um, and they heal this man. Now he stands up. Um, he has been brought there every day his whole life. And the people are stunned to see this. Um, I'll give you some more details as we go. Um, it starts off in verse 11. It says, While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Now, for starters, I don't like the translation of the word colonnade. Um, a better translation is like porch. It's like 
the porch of, of uh, the temple. And all throughout ancient text, you're going to see it called Solomon's porch. Not sure why NIV calls it a colonnade, but whatever. Um, it kind of looks like one. Um, it would be, so if this is the temple that came in the east side, it would be back there, probably behind the area where the Holy of Holies is. Um, in the center here, that's that big area. And it would have looked a bit like this. Um, and so imagine Peter and John, they've healed this man. This man could not enter into the temple because he's a beggar and he's lame. He can't even enter really into the city um, because David, uh, you know, 800 years earlier had banished all um, people who were handicapped from entering into the city. Um, that's a whole other thing. We've talked about it before. Um, and so this man is healed and he's now brought into the temple area, and he's standing here, and the passage says that he was leaning on Peter and John, uh, and he's leaning because he's just been healed. He's never walked before, and so he's leaning on them because his muscles aren't strong enough, and Peter decides, all these people are gathering around because they've seen this man their whole lives. They've passed this guy begging in the same spot every single day. His friends brought him there and set him there, and he begs every day. They take him home, and now they're walking by, and they see him standing, leaning on Peter and John, and they realize this man has just been healed. Now, healings in the ancient world um, were believed to be done by people who were really holy, super righteous, um, uh, and, and basically, if you were super righteous and holy, you were believed to like possess the power of God in the same way the prophets did and Moses and the patriarchs of Israel. And so um, this is where this all sort of picks up. They're standing here, and then Peter stands up to give a speech because they're all looking at Peter and John as if they are holy and perfect people who have power. And so John, uh, Peter responds like this. He says, why does this surprise you? Referring to the man standing there. Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness, uh, we had made this man walk? He says, this has nothing to do with us. We are not righteous or holy people. We're kind of a mess. Um, and what you are seeing here now has nothing to do with our power or our ability. We are here as ambassadors and sort of the Imago Dei of someone else, the image of someone else. Um, and in verse 13, it says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. Now, that verse may not mean a lot to us. It's just a description of God. Um, but these are first century Palestinian Jewish men in this area in the temple. Uh, they know the scriptures. Um, Jewish boys by the age of, 13 or so, have the entire Pentateuch memorized. Um, and the girls would also have um, Psalms and Proverbs memorized. By the way, that's why you always see women in the scriptures quoting the Psalms. This is, they had this text memorized because they didn't go any further in their rabbinical studies. They weren't allowed to. Um, and the boys would start off learning the first five books of the Pentateuch. And then, from that point, they could continue in their studies if they were good enough. And so just the fact that he says this, this is actually a quote, the name, the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Um, this is a quote from Exodus chapter 3, where Moses is standing in front of a bush that seems to be burning but is not consumed, and he's drawn to it, and he gets close, and the bush talks to him, and the bush is like, hey, take your shoes off, because you're on holy ground. And he talks to the bush, as you do, if it talked to you first, you kind of have to respond. And he says, hey, who... <laughs> What's your name, <laughs> little bush? And the bush, the bush says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. Now, that little reference right there is exactly what Peter is quoting. So they understand what Peter is doing. Because Peter says, and this God, the same God that glorified 
Moses, by the way, to glorify a person means to sort of put them in their rightful place, in their office, in their vocation, to lift them up and put them where they belong. We, we're so used to talking about just Jesus being glorified because Jesus is, all through the scriptures it says Jesus is glorified in the sense that Jesus himself is the perfect human, placed in the place where we should all be, where we were created to be. When we look at the life of Christ, we're looking at our life as it should have been lived. So Jesus is glorified, and in the end it says that God's people will be glorified, placed back in our vocation, back in our, in our office, um, under, under our king, um, over the earth, nourishing and, and bringing earth to fruition and flourishing. And according to the ancient Jewish people, this is what we were created here to do. We have a specific role, and all of creation is looking to us as the image of God here um, to bring about new life and flourishing and expansion, which is why it is so important also to take care of the planet on which we live. I'm going to leave that there and keep moving. Um, and so he says this, and he says, now this same God hasn't just glorified Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. He has now glorified Jesus. In other words, that thing that happened with that bush that time, that is happening again, and it's Jesus whom God is glorifying. Jesus is now the one that we follow. He is now our king, um, and it is Jesus here that has done this work through us. It is not us that has done this. It is Jesus. In the same way Moses did works and Isaac and Abraham all did works. Jesus is now doing this one and leading us out. Now, um, if you have been here for our Acts series so far, we're only in chapter three, but I've been showing how Acts presents Christianity as a, a restoration of Israel. Um, the, the apostles and, and Jesus are redefining um, sort of Judaism as they understood it. He's redefining the temple and then saying the temple is no, no longer the building. The temple is God's people gathered. Uh, he's redefining the law. The law is no longer just a bunch of pieces of paper uh, written with a whole bunch of laws on it that we obey. The law is now inside of us. It is, um, it, is, it is the spirit within us guiding us, teaching us right from wrong and leading us in the path of Christ. And we should follow it. By the way, every time that Jesus goes anywhere, it says he was led by the spirit. This is what we are called to be. This is how we are called to live. Um, the word of God is no longer just the scriptures in the Bible. Uh, the word of God is Jesus, by the way. I hope you grasp that. I, I'm so tired of people, especially on the interweb, talking about word of God says this. I'm like, okay, the word of God is Jesus. That's the Bible. This is the collection of writings of people that knew God, okay, um, and that walked with him. The word of God, the final word of God is Christ. And the word of God is alive, and with us, and guiding us, and leading us. Resurrection is real. Okay, so, um, I keep going off tangents, rabbit holes. I'm feeling it. Okay, here we go. Um, now, now, not only are we going to see the re-sort of um, redefinition of the temple, and the word of God, and the law of God, the Torah, all this, um, we are also going to now redefine Israel itself in Christ. Because there's a way that the early Christians, these were Jewish, Palestinian Jewish Christians in the first century. They were considered at this point a sect of Judaism. They had not split yet. Um, they eventually would be kicked out for various reasons I don't have time to go into. But um, these people understood Jesus in a particular light, and that's kind of what I want to lay out before we get really too far into Acts, because you're going to see this a lot. Now, if you go back and you read Israel's story, I'm just going to put a timeline here. That's the beginning of Israel's story. And the X, each X symbolizes sort of an event that is important in the line of the history of Israel. Um, and each one of these things could represent different things. Um, 
but they're all vitally important and they're a part of their story. They're a part of their identity, who they are as a people. Um, Now, when you read the book of Matthew especially, what you will see is Matthew is retelling the big events of Israel through Jesus and pointing out how Jesus has relived Israel's entire history in his life. And here's what I mean. Um, If you look at the very beginning of Israel, it begins with this sort of miraculous birth, right? Abraham, uh, his wife is too old to have a son. The angel shows up, says, hey, you are going to have a son. And he's like, that's impossible because this reason and this reason. That's impossible. He says, it is going to happen. And this son uh, will eventually set forth events that will bring salvation to the whole world. Jesus himself, uh, according, to, um, according to the Gospels, lay out this same thing. There is this angel that appears, speaks to Mary, you are going to have a son. And she says, well, that's impossible because of this and this. He says, this is going to happen. And your son will bring about the salvation of the world. It is the same story retold uh, through Jesus. Um, both are announced by angels. Both are miraculous. And, and then, a little farther on in Israel's story, there is a story about Moses um, and they're afraid that, that the Israelites are going to rise up and have a new king and overthrow the Egyptians. And so Pharaoh, the king of God's people, declares uh, that all the children that are born, uh, that are under the age of two, are all going to die. They're going to be killed. They're going to be slaughtered um, so that this king can't come. You fast forward to, the, to Matthew chapter, um, I believe it's Matthew chapter two, um, and, and there is this story of King Herod declaring that he has heard there's a new king of the Jews being born. And so he wipes out all the children under the age of two. Same thing happens. Um, and then in both of them, in both Israel's story and the story of Jesus, there is this flight from Egypt. And Matthew actually says Jesus was taken to Egypt through a vision. Both stories have visions, actually. And Jesus goes, takes, is taken by his parents to Egypt to escape this tragedy And Matthew says this happened so that he could, like Israel, sort of fulfill the prophecy and come out of Egypt in the same way Israel did. Um, Israel comes out of Egypt, and then there is this going through the waters of the Red Sea, right? And then they wander for 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus, when he starts his ministry, is baptized in the rivers of Jordan. He passes through the waters, and then he goes straight into the wilderness for 40 days. 40 has always meant uh, this time of sort of baptism and, and sort of waiting before God does something new, right? Like 40 days in an ark before the world is made whole again, right? 40 days in the wilderness, 40 days. uh, All all of this over and over and over. So Jesus' story mirrors um, the story of Israel over and over and over and over again. Um, Israel even has these exile stories, several of them. Jesus has this exile story where he's hanging on the cross and he calls out, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, And it's the same passage that Israel proclaims every time they end up in exile. This is all on purpose. God always speaks incarnationally. He speaks in a language that his people will understand. And that is what is happening here. As as a first century uh, Palestinian Jewish man or woman reading the text, you would not be able to keep keep from seeing all the parallels in the life of Jesus and the life of Israel. Um, Even to the point where Israel was called Emmanuel, God with us, because God was literally with them, lived in their midst in the temple, um, in the tabernacle to travel with them. They were also t- 
over and over and over again called God's servant. Everywhere through the Bible where you hear people say, um, speak, Lord, I am your, your servant is listening. Um, even in the New Testament, when Paul writes and Peter writes as well and talks about this, um, the servant of God, he's talking about Israel, always is talking about Israel. That's, that is their posture. They are the servants of God. Um, and Jesus, when he is born, they are told his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. Um, uh, and, and he is constantly called, even in today's passage, Jesus is called the servant. And the parallels are endless. Jesus has 12 disciples. Uh, there are 12 tribes of Israel. Um, all of it, over and over and over. They look at Jesus. He is redefining their story. Except everywhere that Israel fails, Jesus succeeds. And as they tell the story, they hear it. And they see it. Because when you look at the story of Israel, God's people, they are faithless and they are rebellious. And every time God tells them, I want you to trust me. I'm going to ask you to do something that sounds crazy. But this is how the plan moves forward, okay? You're just going to walk into Canaan, okay? This is what's going to happen. And, and, and they're like, I, no, that doesn't make any sense. We're going to send some spies in and we're going to look around. And the spies come back. No, it's not good. Okay, well, we're not going to do this. They are rebel. They're faithless. They don't really believe that God is going to do what God said he's going to do. They don't really believe the plan of God can come about in God's own ways. Um, and Jesus, when you look at the story of Jesus, what you see is a man who is faithful and obedient. He is an Israel who obeys, who trusts. They're like, yes, this is going to be difficult. Um, this is not at all what I want to do. And he admits this. He even says, like, is there any other way, Father? Like, there's got to be another way. Trying to be as pragmatic as possible. And God's like, no, this is, this is the way. Then, then I will trust. And I'll move forward in this way. And everywhere where Israel fails, Jesus succeeds. Their temptation in the wilderness, all of it. In all of this, Israel is called um, God's servants, yet they fail to really be God's servants. Um, and Jesus is one whose life runs parallel to Israel, but reveals what it looks like when God remains king. His entire thing. And all you have to do is look at the end of it all. If you, if you put the ending in here, Israel has always ended in failure and exile. Always. Even when we find them in the New Testament, they are ruled by a Roman emperor, um, half Jewish king, Herod, and he's brutal to them. And they are an occupied people. They're still in bondage. And then Christ, at the end of his story, the general idea is he brings about everything Israel was ever trying to bring about to give Israel um, their king, their Davidic king, to establish a kingdom which will grow and reign and have no end and bring about peace in God's world and bring about the fine, final full reign of God. And there are so many more parallels than just these. And in all of this, um, there is on Jesus' end no compromise um, and none of it. And everywhere that Israel failed, again, Jesus has succeeded. So... Um, Here's the thing I, I, I kind of want to pause here and talk about, because there's this word that we use um, called pragmatism. If you're not familiar with the word, maybe just use it and you never think about what it means. To be pragmatic basically means it's dealing with things sensibly and realistically rather than theoretical considerations and principles. So people have, in general, principles that I live by, right? Like these are the things that I tend to have rules and mottos and principles, and I live upon my principles. However, rules, right, are made to be broken. Uh, and there are certain times when it just makes pragmatic sense 
to turn away from my principles and to go this way, it will be more beneficial financially. It will be more beneficial physically. Um, I won't fall into any kind of persecution. Things won't get difficult. I won't become an outcast in my family or my community. Um, And it's very pragmatic of me to, at this point, uh, depart from my principles and the things that I really believe and um, and say, well, this is easier. I'm going to do this. Uh, by and large, the people of God, Israel and ourselves included and especially, um, we tend to follow the plan of God up until a point where it seems to depart from conventional modern wisdom. Um, this is how we tend to live today. One of the things that Jesus has revealed to us about, about God and ourselves is that the way that God works is mysterious It's confusing. It seems the opposite of what would actually work. You can't win by losing. You don't establish a kingdom by having the king killed. Um, You don't build a uh, sort of an intellectual group of people, of, of, of rabbinical students, and teach them by picking the bottom of the barrel and picking widely from all kinds of, of boys from all t- sort of different walks of life. And the ones who have all failed out of rabbinical school, they're fishermen, they're tax collectors, they're zealots, all kinds of stuff. And you bring them together, and this is how you're going to build your school. None of this makes any sense. Everything that Jesus did was backwards. Um, he was not born in a palace. He was born in a manger. Everything that we would look at and see as powerful and important, Jesus is the exact opposite of this thing. But Jesus reveals what happens to Israel's story uh, when they have thrown off pragmatism, which is based upon fear, by the way. Um, typically when you're turning away from your principles to do something else, that makes a lot of sense. When you turn away from exactly what Jesus has commanded us as God's people to do, how we are commanded to live as a unique kingdom in this world, no king but Christ, no kingdom uh, but Jesus. Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is. And living in this way is very, not very pragmatic because it will put you at odds and has historically put people, Christians in particular, at odds with all the nations of the world. And it has always brought up on, upon us persecution for speaking truth to the emperors, to the kings, to the empires and the nations of the world. We were always called to be a unique people whose kingdom is worldwide, whose army, whose, who has no army but, but the God of angel armies, who has no banner or flag but the banner over us is love. That's how the scriptures constantly describe our existence as God's people. And Jesus reveals what happens when we put off fear and we live in sort of the, the path of God. As God's people were always called to live. It's based upon trust, trusting God. And when you don't trust somebody, you don't follow them. Most Christians today in the Western evangelical world of which, of which I am in, I, I would say they don't really trust the teachings of Jesus. They believe in the teachings of Jesus, they say, but they don't really trust them. They think it's a terrible idea. The Sermon on the Mount, just throw that right out because that's too complicated and difficult. Turning the other cheek, loving your enemies, praying for those persons. None of this makes any sense in this modern world. It's a very dangerous place to live. You can't live that way. So we follow Jesus up until a certain point, and then we sort of go this way because it just makes sense. And it makes sense. But here's the thing. Every bad decision Israel made made sense when you look at it. It, it made sense not to go into Canaan. It made sense um, to partner with empires like Persia because they're powerful and they can protect you. You're a little minority people. It makes sense to partner with Egypt 
It makes sense to sometimes worship other gods because you can never have too many gods on your side. Like it all sort of makes sense in their mind. And so um, they go along with it. But every single time it ends terribly. And every decision that Ismail makes, it ends badly, even though it seems to make sense. And yet, never once did any of these decisions bring them salvation. Not one time did they ever fulfill the mission that they were set out to fulfill, which was to be a blessing in the world and to usher in the kingdom of God and the restoration of God's people and the glorification of all people to their vocation and to their office to be reconciled with God and peace in the world. Like, it never happened. Stuff got worse and worse and worse. It never was made right. So Peter, in today's message, in today's passage, we see verses like this. You handed him over to be killed. Now, I want to pause for a second. Um, We read this sometimes, and in the hands of the wrong people, these kinds of passages can can become very racist, very difficult. This is an internal conversation. Peter and John are Jewish men talking to their Jewish brothers and sisters. This is a family conversation. Um, and he is speaking to them, confronting them as them, as one of them, okay? Um, this should not be taken as a way that we should talk about the Jewish people today, by the way. That is incredibly dangerous. Um, it is heavy in some of the medieval reformers' writings, and it, you can follow a line directly to the Holocaust from these kinds of, this kinds of language. So let's leave that there. Um, he says, you handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. And you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Again, family conversation, but what he's saying is basically, um, he, says, he says, over and over and over, You made the wrong decision, but it actually made sense. I mean, what they did, what he's talking about here is there's this moment where where Israel's leaders, like the the, the Pharisaic movement, uh, these Pharisee Pharisee leaders are there, and in the middle of the night, there's this trial, and they have to choose now because someone's going to be released to them, and there's there's two men on the chopping block. Uh, One of them, his name is Jesus Christ. We know him very well. This is the person we're talking about. And then there's this other person there named Jesus Barabbas. They both shared the name Jesus. And they were both have several things in common. Um, we can tell from the Greek and the language of the day that Barabbas was a revolutionary. He was an insurrectionist. Um, people who were crucified were people who led rebellions against Rome. And crucifixion was sort of the, 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 the punishment for an insurrectionist. So... They were both sort of messianic figures, Jesus Barabbas and Jesus Christ. A messianic figure is simply someone who wants to be the king of Israel by leading a movement that purges God's land of all these oppressive Romans so they can establish the Davidic kingdom and all this stuff. So they're given a choice. You have Jesus, Jesus Christ, this messianic revolutionary figure who actually wants to make peace with your enemies instead of wipe them out. He actually um, is completely nonviolent and loves people. Okay, then you have Jesus Barabbas, a violent insurrectionist who wants to take up an army with swords and weapons and overthrow Rome. And here's your choice. And God's people now get to make the choice of who they want to be their king. And they will once again make the same choice that we have always made and that we still tend to make today which is we choose the strong, violent insurrection, Barabbas. We want a strong man to lead us and to kill our enemies. And we reject Jesus every time. Nobody wants to be led by Jesus because it doesn't make sense. His plan makes zero sense in our minds. But this is what we are given. 
And what Peter's saying is, look at what happened. Look at your history. Look at where it's led you. You've always done the same thing. Look at Jesus. He was resurrected. You saw him. Many of us saw him. And we go a little farther in the text and we see in verse 17 through 20. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance. You were making decisions in the same way everyone does. As, as did your leaders. It was completely ignorant. You don't understand the plan of God. In verse 18, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets saying that this Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He's telling them, he was your leader. Make him your leader now. This has never worked. And I mean, this is for us as well. Like, it has not been working. In general, our expression of evangelical Christianity in the West has not been working. There are places where Christians are staying faithful. Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, where they're in, under intense persecution in Jordan. And, and they're staying faithful. In Iran, the underground church, mostly led but now by women, is exploding. It is expanding rapidly. And that's incredibly dangerous. And he's saying, look back, this has never worked. What works is Jesus. And then we go a little farther here. He says, for Moses said, now here's the words of Moses, your, uh, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. We're talking about exile. Like God's people will take the shape and the form of this Jesus. And if you don't, you will not be a part of it. We go a little farther. Uh, he said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raises up his servant, he said, uh, he, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So the whole point here of Jesus, he's laying out the timeline again, right? And he's saying, Jesus was sent to correct us, to take us off the timeline that we were on and put us and give us what the apostles would call eternal life living for things that aren't just going to fail again and again and again. Eternal life, things now that will last forever. This is not something, some concept that for you to receive later. Now you are called into eternal life, to step off of the timeline that you are on, just doing what makes sense, um, adhering to what Paul would call the, the, um, the patterns of this world, right? Rejecting that, stepping into the line of Christ and listening to his teaching and actually living by them this is eternal life because this will, this will last. This works. This is what God intends for the world. This is part of God's plan, he says. Um, and in the Gospels, Israel has actually been placed in Christ. So let me do a little boom. Israel is now inside Christ. And so now they can, they can throw off their old story and they can say, well, no, we, we have victory because of Jesus. Our story is retold through Christ. It's good. It ends well. We are now a faithful people because Jesus was faithful. Like all it took was one, right? Like he was faithful. And our life is encapsulated in the life of Christ. You are in Christ. That's what Paul says over and over and over. He's talking to his people. You're carrying all this weight from all your failures. But hey, here's how I want you to see yourself. God made a new Adam. You were the old Adam and God made a new Adam. And this Adam succeeded where you failed. And you have been planted in this Adam. Do not carry your failures. 
You are in this, Adam. You are forgiven. You are made whole. Now respond to it. And here's the thing. Just like them, us, Watermark, the church at large, we are also called to be hidden in Christ, to be in Christ. I've heard this described sometimes as, as God's so mad at you that God can't even look at you, so you have to be hidden in Christ. So when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. I don't know. That's not, a, that's not, that's bad theology. Um, no, you're hit, you are in Christ. To be in Christ, technically, a lot of the theologians would say was to be in the church, and I'm okay with that because you're a part of God's people. Um, you are the temple gathered together. To be in Christ is not a complicated idea. We are called to repent, to place our life in Christ, and now our decisions become Christ's decisions. Our responses become Christ's responses. And we awaken in the morning and we pray, Father, be with me. Um, Christ within me, Christ before me, Christ behind me. Go with me. Allow me um, to be your presence in this world. And we are in Christ, no longer making the same decisions that we have before. Our work becomes Christ's work. We are the body of Christ. And where pragmatism steps in and says, hey, you know, things would go a lot better and easier. You'd be more financially beneficial. You'd lose less um, less friends and community. If you would just go this way, you know, you could, you could control the culture if you were in charge of it. So if you could gain a lot of earthly power and clout, then you could actually use the earthly militaries and the earth, all, all, and you could somehow establish the kingdom of God. God will never establish his kingdom that way. That is not how it happens. It never has been how it happened. Every time that it's happened, that has fallen. Jesus is king. No king but Jesus. And we are, are in Christ. We find ourselves in Christ. You don't need to make the decision because Christ has already done so. Um, and this doesn't make sense to a lot of people. The life of the cross, to live a life like Christ, and you look at Christ and you're like, well, things didn't seem to go real well for him. Or the disciples, they were very Christ-like after, you know, after they started their ministry, not so much beforehand. Um, but like, they were very Christ-like, but it didn't seem to go well for them. And, and Paul writes and says, uh, yeah, the, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. If you don't get it, if you don't understand Christ, if you don't understand what God is doing in the world, then you have nothing to lay anything down for. No reason to pour yourself out. No reason to speak truth to power. No reason to be the prophetic voice to love your enemy, to associate with those who are downtrodden and oppressed and to be with them and sit with them and worshiping King Jesus and bringing them in. No reason to. It doesn't make sense to you. The path of the cross is foolishness to you. Um, but, to, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We can see it. We can see how Jesus in his death, burial, resurrection, in his teachings and how he lived his life has created this movement that has spread worldwide. I think people give Christianity like in, in, in Christian history a bad rap because they ignore the amount of things that we all benefit from that, that, that Christianity has brought into the world. The Cappadocian fathers invented, invented hospices and hospitals and, and um, the, the Byzantine monks uh, uh, created um, public school and education and, and the early church is the first religious sect really in the ancient world to like put women in, in positions of leadership and, and to educate them. All of the things that, a lot of the things that we take for, for, for granted today and that we have now given back to the public sphere were began by people who were followers of Jesus who knew the world needed these things because this is what God is doing in this world. And so they do it. And there are so many things that Christianity has done for there, but But the problem is now we've become so terrified we don't really trust that the path of God is the right way. And so we compromise. 
And so we go these other ways that are incredibly pragmatic. There's this pastor that I love. I, I, I don't have a pastor. You do. I don't have a pastor. So I kind of listen to a lot of them and like talk to different people. There's this pastor I listen to. His name is Brian Zond. He pastors the church called Word of Life. I think it's somewhere in like Mississippi or something like that. He's incredible. And, and he said something a few weeks ago that I just keep thinking about. He said, okay, one of the reasons that uh, the angels, you know, whenever angels appear to, appear to people in the text, they're always like, Hey, real quick, fear not, first off. Don't be afraid. Um, and it's always the first thing they say. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And God appears to people, don't be afraid. And he says, he says, you know why we're constantly being told not to be afraid? Why the first words out of their mouth when they appear to us is don't be afraid? Because this is the message that all of heaven wants us to hear more than anything else. More than anything else. Don't be afraid. God is doing something. It's heading somewhere. And this means that we can, we can be obedient. We can trust. We can make that difficult decision that aligns with the kingdom of God, even though it separates us from the kingdoms of this world in whatever form it takes in your life. And I know there's tons of them that we make every single day. And what heaven wants us to know is, more than anything else, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Retell the story of Jesus. Wrap yourself up in this story. Do not be afraid. And then we have the words of Paul. For Christ's love compels us. Those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You guys, we are, as followers of Jesus, not called to do the things that are, that are easy, that make pragmatic sense, that relieve us from, uh, that, that, that make life financially easy or politically easy or anything like that. We are, we are called to do, th- to do things that are Christ-like and only Christ-like. Um, there is a difference between doing what's right and doing what's Christ-like. There is. There's a lot of people who do the right thing who are very much not Christ-like at all, but they believe they're doing the right thing. The things of Christ are led by mercy and love and grace and reconciliation. They rarely make sense. They rarely fit nicely into our lives and they rarely allow us to stay comfortable for very long. The things of Christ are difficult. Um, I'm gonna invite our, our community servers. You guys can go ahead and take the elements and spread around the room while I, while I sort of tack on one little story in the end to put some of this in perspective. Um, if you've heard, okay, so a lot of the early church fathers wrote some of the most important writings in all of church history that established the church in their day as this incredible, beautiful, beautiful life-giving thing. But what we don't realize is a lot of these early church fathers only became followers of Jesus because of the faithfulness of other Christians in intense persecution. For instance, there's this guy named Tertullian. Tertullian started out as this super well-educated, devout citizen of Rome, um, and he was converted to Christianity when he saw Christians being persecuted. When he saw them as a Roman citizen, as a Roman sort of elite, hearing about what the Christians were going through and then seeing them being skinned alive, being tortured, being boiled, being torn apart by wild animals for refusing 
to go along with the edicts of the king and for basically living out the kingdom of God as God has called them to. And Tertullian is watching these people suffer. And at some point, he sees so many of them suffering and just being obedient and loving even the people that are torturing them that at some point he breaks down and he decides whatever it is that they have, that they are willing to go through this. That's what I want. Whatever that is, that is what I want. And Tertullian gives up his position. He becomes a follower of Jesus. He gets, he, he, he enters into the church and is raised up as one of the church fathers and eventually is martyred by the same people he used to work for. And this is not new. The same thing for, for um, Origen, inspired by the, by the martyrdom of his own father. Um, this is how the kingdom of God has been established, by doing things that don't fully make sense, by trusting that this is what God has for us. We're here for a very short period of time, but there is resurrection. And that is what we are given to understand. And I want us to ponder all this as we move into communion. You guys can come on up and, and, um, and gather with the elements around the room. There are two elements. There's the body of Christ broken for us, the, uh, the blood of Christ poured out for us, symbolized by the bread and the wine. Um, and we take some time and we ponder our lives. And today I would like for us to spend some time pondering all of the ways that we have turned our backs on exactly what God has for us to do in maybe very difficult times for you. And you've turned your back on this because it's more pragmatic. And I want you to ponder Israel and I want you to ponder Jesus and what we are given to look at is what you're doing. Does it have anything to do with the kingdom of God? If it doesn't, then it's probably fighting against it. So why don't we spend some time pondering all of these things and then we'll take communion and sing one more song. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are, for what you have done. I pray that we would find ourselves in Christ. I pray that we would uh, surrender our lives daily, that we would awaken to, uh, to your presence around us, calling us into a, a new way forward, that we must learn to have trust, that we must learn to have true allegiance and faithfulness to you. Help us to look back at our own stories. Look at all the things that, that, that should not be. And let us move forward in grace and mercy and in you. Let your decisions become our decisions. Let your ways become our ways. Let us awaken and pray every single day that the presence of Christ would be upon us, would guide our thoughts, that Christ would be within us, before us, and behind us. Thank you, God, in your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus if you would.